Let's stand together, brothers and sisters, for the reading of God's Word. How gracious is our God to have given us His Word. We may know Him. We'll be reading from Acts uh, chapter 13, starting at verse 38 and going through to chapter 14, verse 7. Uh, Still in the first missionary journey there in southern Galatia. And we'll be focusing there on verses uh, 42 to uh, 52, where we see the response of the people to the sermon that was preached by Paul there at Antioch in Pisidia. Brothers and sisters, please listen very carefully, because this is God's holy and infallible word. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. You may recall that during Paul's sermon that we looked at last week when he was preaching there in the synagogue at Antioch in Pisidia, 
Paul said, he referenced John the Baptist, he says, and as John was finishing his course, he said, who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Paul references John the Baptist pointing to Jesus. So pointing to John the Baptist pointing to Jesus, Paul proclaims the unmatched glory of Jesus Christ that was presented already through the preaching of John the Baptist. In addition, Paul brings before our eyes the message of John the Baptist toward the end of his ministry as he was running his course. And Luke relates this message in his gospel and it includes that section that Paul quoted. Here's the full quote from Luke. Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist prophesied that Jesus Christ would thoroughly clean out his threshing floor, separating his elect wheat into his barn and burning up the unbelieving chaff with an unquenchable fire to different kind of Holy Spirit baptisms. There's two different kinds of baptisms in view here. One unto eternal life and joy and gladness, and one unto eternal damnation. Jesus baptizes His people, His elect wheat, with His Holy Spirit unto salvation, bringing them into His barn of joy. Whereas Jesus baptizes those who reject His word with a fire whose flames shall never fade. Maybe some of you have already thought of the lake of fire. Little children, would you rather swim in a lake, in a swimming pool, with water? Or would you rather swim in a lake of fire? Adults, which would you choose? Isn't it good of God to lay it out so clearly for us and, and make the choice easy for us? So in today's text, we see Jesus Christ fulfilling this prophecy. Indeed, with the gospel preached, his winnowing fan, his winnowing fork is on display today. He separates his people from those who remain in their sin and their unbelief and their hatred for God. So we'll look at this text today. The Gentiles beg for the word of God in verse 42. That's a response. Remember, this is a response to preaching. We're seeing the winnowing fork is being revealed. Preaching has occurred, and now we're seeing the separation that occurs from the preaching of God's Word. Many Jews and devout proselytes believe the whole city almost comes to hear the gospel sometime after this, but there's envious Jews who blaspheme and contradict and oppose the gospel. We see Paul and Barnabas still under the work of the Holy Spirit rebuking the Jews openly, referencing Old Testament Scripture and saying, we're going to turn to the Gentiles. Gentiles are glad. They're happy. They're glorifying God. They're, they're glorifying the Word. They're believing. Again, keep in your mind the separation that's taking place via the Word of God. What happens when people are happy about the Word? It spreads. And also, what happens when people are despising Christ? 
They may actually spread the gospel in derision. But in any case, the message is going out. But the Jews will have none of it. And they use emotional techniques to bring in the devout women and the leaders of the city to persecute Paul and Barnabas and to get them expelled from the city. And they leave, but they shake the dust off their feet when they leave. And this is worth noting. And then the disciples there at that town, Antioch and Pisidia, the result there is they are filled with joy. Even, even in the midst of all this difficulty, the disciples are filled with joy. Of course, we'll talk about this, look at it at the end, think this through categorically. Over here on the one hand, we see those who are being brought into eternal life. What does it look like in their lives? We see those on this hand who are being very clearly demonstrated to be those who have judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. And, of course, always the question is, what do you see in your life? What do you see in your life? Okay. Verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. So after the preaching, the Jews departed without voicing a decision. There's nothing here that the Jews made a decision. I think it's worth noting, each one of you here, it is a reckless thing to delay making a decisive response to the word of God. During World War II, Martin Lloyd-Jones would preach Uh, Multiple times on Sundays, it was during World War II, they were being bombed. London was being bombed. They were worshiping God in a church, in a city that was being bombed. Let Let that sink in. And one morning he preached, but he didn't finish the gospel. He gave them a stern warning and said, come back this evening. And there was bombings and some of his, some of the folks were killed before the next service. And he resolved never, ever to divide the gospel like that ever again. But it does bring the point home to all of us, do not delay making a decisive response in your heart and mind to the preaching of the Word of God, whether it be unto new faith and salvation or whether it be unto the conviction of sin that you may experience as the result of God's Word. Next. After the preaching, the Gentiles begged that the Word of God might be preached to them again and soon. So begged teaches us a lot. This Greek verb, the commentary says, is in the imperfect, portraying the requesting in a vivid, ongoing manner. Examine your heart. Does your heart beg for the Word of God? Beg for the preaching of the Word of God? Is that the kind of hunger that you have for God's truth? And it is worth noting that they desire not only the Word of God, but that they wanted it to be preached to them. Calvin said, One of the greatest evidences of the Holy Spirit at work in a people is that the Word of God is going forth from the pulpit to the people and the people are saying, yes, give it to me. I want to hear it. And they're all feasting together on God's Word. That's what's happening here. I want us to note that the Spirit works in His elect to cause us to love to hear the preaching of God's Word by His faithful ministers. And I think we have to say that Paul and Barnabas were loving to preach it. Right? So this is what happens when God is at work in a people. And it doesn't happen any other way. Now, it's worth noting here, um, the next Sabbath actually means on the Sabbath between. So the idea here is the Sabbath in between the Sabbath. This won't be in any of your translations, but it is one of the stronger texts showing us the beginning of the Christian Sabbath. The Sabbath between the Sabbath was the Christian Sabbath, and it would have been the very next day. 
Kaiser says, they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath and sat down. That's in Acts 13, 14. That's the scene. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the Sabbath in between. Acts 13, 13 through 41, shows Paul reasoning with the Jews on their Sabbath day in their synagogue. When they rejected the word, Paul gave the same words to them on a Sabbath in between the Jewish Sabbaths. And there's a lot more that could be said about that, but it's very likely that it was, very, excuse me, it's very unlikely that it was, it was some other special Sabbath day or anything like that was, happen, that was happening at that time, but that instead it was the Christian Sabbath. Next, verse 43, many Jews and devout proselytes believe. Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So we do see here some of the Jews, many of the Jews, and devout proselytes. So a proselyte is a, a non-Jew who would have been a God-fearer like we discussed with Cornelius, who had come to an interest in the Most High God and was going through becoming a Jew on their way to circumcision for men or on their way to joining uh, the Jewish church. So they had their evangelism and they had their plan of bringing in people and it was happening. So there were these proselytes who were on their way in. And they, along with some Jews, believed. And they followed Paul and Barnabas. So not only did the Lord work in the Gentiles, as we saw, but also many Jews and devout proselytes believed. So it's a picture of the church to come. It's a beautiful thing to see the Lord God bringing the gospel to the peoples. Now this idea of followed Paul and Barnabas is opened up in the commentary. It means they became their disciples, or rather the disciples of Christ, whose agents they were. Those that join themselves to Christ will join themselves to his ministers and follow them. So this idea of following Paul and Barnabas is the demonstration, is how they're showing their belief. Uh, from evangelism to discipleship is on display here. This idea that they persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. <coughs> they had preached the grace of God to them. They had come to faith in the grace of God, and they didn't give them some new plan. They told them to continue in the grace of God, which is a, a wonderful description of what we're doing. We're here together by God's grace seeking to continue together in the grace of God and not get distracted, not get off course, not get our eyes off of Christ and look for some other way to grow, some other way to go on other than in the same grace that saved us at the beginning. Commentary says they were exhorted and encouraged to persevere. Paul and Barnabas speaking to them with all the freedom and friendship imaginable persuaded them to continue in the grace of God, to hold fast to that which they had received, to continue in their belief of the gospel of grace, their dependence upon the spirit of grace, and their attendance upon the means of grace. And the grace of God shall not be wanting to those who thus continue in it. Brothers and sisters, we've done nothing. We could never do anything to deserve God's favor that he's given to us in Christ. It is the grace of God which saves us, and that is true from start, middle, to end. May we continue in the grace of God together. Note, those who preach the gospel out of love for God and his kingdom will also have a heart to encourage those who do believe to continue in God's grace. 
One of the evidences of gospel preaching is grace-based preaching is grace-based discipleship. And may that be true of us now and always here at Cornerstone. So almost what happens next? Almost the whole city came to hear the gospel. (laughs) On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. So it's like an avalanche. It's like a landslide. A little bit has occurred with that first sermon and then it's gone out a little bit more as they continue them. They persuade them to continue in the grace of God and it's growing and it's spreading in that town. And everybody's like, oh, they're going to preach some more? Let's go. Now, I believe, I'm not dogmatic about this, I believe it's likely that this is the next day, which would have been the Christian Sabbath. And Paul and Barnabas are preaching to the Gentiles per their request in verse 42. So they've asked them to do this, and the word has gone out that they're going to do it. Um, But not only do the Gentiles show up, almost the entire city is present to hear the word of God. This is another thing that happens when God is at work mightily amongst a land. He brings everything into the threshing floor. And the preaching goes out, and that winnowing fork starts doing doing its work. So one of the signs of the work of God is when lots of people are hearing the gospel message. And it's very likely this was not inside the synagogue, given that, as I said, probably the Christian Sabbath is likely in view, and given the size of the gathering. It's it's very unlikely the synagogue could have held all the people. Commentary says it should be noted that Luke does not claim that the large crowd gathered in the synagogue, that that's where the first sermon took place, but that's not where they are now. Obviously, the synagogue in Antioch could not have accommodated thousands of people. The crowd could have gathered in front of the synagogue, whose location has not been established through archaeological efforts, or perhaps in the large open space of the Tiberia Plateau in front of the Temple of Augustus. So now we're getting to some of the details that we do know about the city. Or in the square called Augusta Platea, Platea, not Plateau, Platea, at the northern end of the main street, the Cardo Maximus, or in the theater. So there's lots of places they could have met there in that town that they didn't know about. If indeed Paul arrived in the city with a letter of introduction from the governor of Cyprus, you remember Sergius Paulus had come to faith, so perhaps he, he was arriving with a letter. And if he was able to establish contact with the leading aristocratic families of the city during the first days of his visit, it is not impossible that several thousand people gathered to hear Paul speak. This was a big gathering. Paul has an opportunity to preach to a big crowd. Note the way the Lord gathers all into his threshing floor as he does his winnowing with his word. One of the things taught to us about his threshing floor is that the gospel will go out to all the peoples. The gospel will go out and he will winnow with his word. The chaff are separated by the same winnowing tool as the wheat. The gospel of God. It is a great tool that God has given to us. There's none like it. His word. And may we believe it. May we be those who experience these beautiful glad fruits. Amen, brothers and sisters. May that be true of our souls by God's grace. So... Here in southern Galatia, and I'm going to say that over and over again. I believe this is southern Galatia. We know it's southern Galatia. And I believe the Galatians is written to these churches. And when we come to the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, and the, the great heresy that was on the table there by the Judaizers, 
it, it gives us some context as we think this through. Consider it. They, they had told them to continue in the grace of God. And the Judaizers come and say, no, 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 don't continue in the grace of God. So we can already see some hints here of how things got really turned upside down quickly by the Judaizers. Going on. When the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. So the Jews are envious. Um, the whole city's there. Paul's up preaching the word of God to them. And the unbelieving Jews demonstrate their hatred for God. And uh, their crooked souls are on display here in this situation. It's a, very, it's a very ugly scene. So first of all, they're filled with envy. Um, commentary says they grudge the interest the apostles had in the people were vexed to see the synagogue so full when they were going to preach so Matthew Henry was sharing these words with his perspective being there in the synagogue this was the same spirit that worked in the Pharisees towards Christ they were cut to the heart when they saw the whole world go after him when the kingdom of heaven was opened they not only would not go in themselves but they were angry with those that did so it seems like these Jews themselves had desired large crowds at their meetings, but they had not seen it. So instead of love for Christ's glory and rejoicing in the success of the gospel and embracing the word of God, they wanted personal glory, it seems, via large crowds for themselves and the attendant social preeminence that would have gone along with it. Again, like what we saw often with Christ and the Pharisees. So there's a simple note here for us. Please, brothers and sisters, beware of focusing upon crowds instead of focusing on Christ. We love to see the pews of Cornerstone filled up. Amen, we would. But why? For the worship of Christ. For the worship of Christ. We grieve. Why? Because Edgefield City and County is not on its knees glorifying Christ together. That, that's what we're after. That, those are the crowds we want to see for His glory. Next, note Christ will bring his crowds in his due time as he builds his church and marks out the chaff. This is what he's doing, and we rest in his timing. He is the cornerstone. He builds his church. He shapes us as living stones. He, built, he brings his living stones together according to his own plan and his own time. We can rest in him. So these envious Jews displayed this through these practices that are described here, contradicting and blaspheming, and then the general category is opposing the gospel. This is grievous behavior to get between an eternal soul and its only hope for salvation. This is grievous sin. Listen to how Matthew Henry describes this. May this never be true of any of us. May we never, ever get between someone's eternal life message and their souls. Matthew Henry says, they opposed the doctrine the apostles preached. They spoke against those things that were spoken by Paul. They caviled at them, started objections against them, finding some fault or other with everything he said, contradicting and blaspheming. They did it with the utmost spite and rage imaginable. They persisted in their contradiction and nothing would silence them. They contradicted for contradiction's sake and denied that which was most evident. And when they could find no color of objection, they broke out into ill language against Christ and his gospel, blaspheming him and it. From the language of the carnal man that receives not the things of the Spirit of God, 
and therefore contradicts them, they proceed on to the language of incarnate devils and blaspheme them. Commonly, those who begin with contradicting end with blaspheming. So this is the sad state, and yet we can rejoice at the demonstration that Jesus has accomplished showing the difference between wheat and chaff. This is what Jesus does when his word goes forth. So Paul and Barnabas rebuke the Jews and turn to the Gentiles. It seems like there's probably some degree of engagement with them for a time, but there comes a point in time where they give them this final rebuke. He says that they grew bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you rejected and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. So first we note that the same spirit that had been working in them all along maintains God's divine power in their hearts and minds. It says they grew bold. So this is a work of the Holy Spirit for them to publicly rebuke these Jews at that time. Instead of shrinking back and discontinuing their preaching, they continue forward in their mission. They not only continue preaching to the Gentiles, but they also clearly define to the Jews where they stand before God because of their opposition to the gospel. This is a minister's duty to clearly define for someone where they stand if they are in opposition to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a, a friendly work to those who are being the enemies of God. So the commentary says they spoke out fearlessly. That is, they reaffirm their message with courage and with boldness, and they formulate their conclusion to the opposition of the Jewish community with openness and with clarity. They're very frank with them. Luke relates their words in direct speech. And as any of us are, have an opportunity to present the gospel, it is part of the gospel process to lay out that it is a dangerous place to be, to be in opposition to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to how, they, how Paul and Barnabas describe this. First, they say that it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. Now, I don't know for sure, but it seems like perhaps there's this thing in Paul and Barnabas' mind, like, you know, we really would have rather gone to these hungry people because it's kind of clear where the hungry people were. Yet, you know, they were invited in at the beginning, if you think back to last week's sermon, they were invited in by the synagogue leadership to preach. Um, but Paul is directly referencing something very important in Scripture, Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. This is God's plan, that his, his people, the Jews, would be the first recipients. They'd be first in line. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. This, Greek. this is never meant to exclude the Gentiles. But the Jews were just simply first in line at that time. Okay? We see the Gentiles outside, desiring, wanting, and the Jews rejecting. Romans eleven twenty eight refers to this. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. So there's a great set of promises that God has made through the ages to the Jews, to his people, to Israel. So to be a member of the Jewish church at that time was to be amongst the first beloved recipients of all the promises of salvation. 
because of God's promises to their fathers in the faith. So this is God being faithful to his elect people from the Old Testament, giving them the first opportunity to receive and adore the foretold Messiah. Commentary says, the necessity of proclaiming the word of God about the fulfillment of his promise in Jesus to you first arises from the plan of God. The people of the promise are the first to hear about the fulfillment of God's promises to the fathers, a fact that confirms that God is faithful to his promises. So he, he not only carried it out, the, but he told the people that he had made the promises too first. In Romans 1.16, Paul asserts that the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. This priority of the Jews is for Paul both a chronological and a theological priority. And that's helpful. Whenever he enters a city, he seeks out the Jews first because he will be able, as a Jew, with rabbinical training, to get a hearing in the meetings of the synagogue. So this is the chronological priority. And don't we see God's kindness to bring a man like this as the apostle to the Gentiles, but to also honor his promises to his peoples as he did this, bringing the message to the Jews first and bringing them a rabbinically trained man. Going on with the commentary, and he seeks out the Jews first because they are the descendants of Abraham, members of God's covenant people who deserve to hear the good news of the arrival of the Messiah and his salvation before this message is proclaimed to pagans. And yet we see the Gentiles like dogs around the table waiting for the scraps with glee. Remember Jesus said that to that woman. And she in faith just said, but we love the scraps, Lord. And hey, look around because we're a bunch of dogs, aren't we? We are those Gentiles whom God has had mercy upon and brought the message to us. And here's how Paul describes their unbelief. He says, since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. So when, the, when someone rejects the gospel, they are, they're actually judging themselves in some way. They're saying, I want condemnation. I deserve condemnation. So by rejecting the word of God, the Jews judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. Not only do they remain under God's judgment, they also judge themselves as guilty. They judge themselves as continuing in their sin they judge themselves as worthy of condemnation. Now, this isn't meant to in any way say that those of us who are saved were somehow worthy. Okay, that's not what's being said. Commentary puts it this way. In one sense, we must all judge ourselves unworthy of everlasting life, for there is nothing in us nor done by us by which we can pretend to merit it, and we must be made sensible of this, but here the meaning is, you discover, so this is kind of a paraphrase, that. This is what Paul's saying. You discover or make it appear that you are not meet for eternal life. You throw away all your claims and give up your pretensions to it. Since you will not take it from his hands unto, into whose hand the Father has given it, you do in effect pass this judgment upon yourselves, and out of your own mouth you shall be judged. You will not have it by Christ, by whom alone it is to be had, and so shall your doom be. You shall not have it at all. So what happens is that Paul and Barnabas turn to the Gentiles according to Old Testament prophecy. They would have gotten there anyways, but now they're there very, a good bit faster because the Jews have rejected it. 
In the book of Romans, Paul warns the Gentiles to look to God's grace in all things in their salvation. It's easy when we read this to forget this warning to the, to the Gentiles then and to us today. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God and those who fell severity, but toward you goodness if you continue in His goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. So he's talking to Gentiles about the Jews who are cut off. And he's warning them about the, the haughtiness that can come to those who do believe, especially in the context of seeing the ugliness of the Jews at that time. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? So these are words that help us, brothers and sisters, to continue in grace. Continue in grace. Since you will not accept eternal life as it is offered, our way is plain. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Commentary is trying to get into the mind of Paul and Barnabas. If one will not, another will. If those that were first invited to the wedding feast will not come, we must invite out of the highways and hedges those that will, for the wedding must be furnished with guests. If he that is next of kin will not do the kinsman's part, he must not complain that another will. We're going to get a sense of this as we go on, this beating the dust off of their feet. It's very important for us to consider this as we are evangelists, as we are disciples. I remember a friend early on as a Christian, he said, Matt, throw out the seeds and spend time with the hungry birds. Throw out the seeds and spend time with the hungry birds. And I've often thought since then, yeah, because it's kind of a waste of time to chase a bird. <laughs> I've never caught one. <laughs> not, not unless they were stuck inside the garage. <laughs> All right. Old Testament fulfillment. This is so beautiful. This is Isaiah 49.6. This is from whence this quote comes that Paul gives to them. And we see the full surrounding context. Isaiah 49, 6, it says, Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that, should, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is in the Old Testament. This is in Isaiah. This was foretold. Paul knows this. Barnabas knows this. And he tells this to the Jews at the time. And we'll see as we go on, the Gentiles heard it and they were glad. So Jesus is not only the Savior of the Jews to restore them and raise them up, but also he's the light of the world, bringing the salvation of God to all the people of the earth, to the ends of the whole world. Paul is preaching the greatness of God. Not just, oh, we need to go to the Gentiles too, this little group here, but through Isaiah 49, he's bringing in we are starting something here that's going to spread to the whole world. We are a part of this great work that God is doing. About this, commentary makes uh, multiple points that I think really are worth hearing. Again, this is Matthew Henry, Matthew Henry. One, Christ is not only the Savior, but the salvation. He himself is our righteousness and our life and our strength. Next. Wherever Christ is designed to be salvation, he is set up to be a light. He enlightens the understanding and so he saves the soul. So he is our salvation and he is the one who enlightens us by his spirit. Next, he is and is to be light and salvation to the Gentiles 
to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> Those of every nation shall be welcome to him. Some of every nation have heard of him, and all nations shall at length become his kingdom. This prophecy has had its accomplishment in part, and of course he's speaking about England then, in the setting up of the kingdom of Christ in this island of ours, which lies, as it were, in the ends of the earth, a corner of the world, and shall be accomplished more and more when the time comes for the bringing in the fullness of the Gentiles. So Paul brings forth this astonishing reality here in the midst of this controversy, this conflict with the Jews. This message that you're rejecting is going to the whole world. This man that you reject, he is the light of the whole world. So the Gentiles hear this. Unlike the Jews, they don't contradict. They don't blaspheme. They don't oppose. They believe. It says when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So I want us to note the work of Christ in the hearts of these Gentiles. So it says they heard the word of God. This points to the work of the Spirit within them to make them attentive listeners. See, that's what God does in our hearts when we receive the preaching of the word. We are attentive listeners. Uh, Pastor Brigno, when he was preaching, he's like, we should be on the edge of our seats for the word of God. And this is what they're doing. This is what happens next. They are glad. They are glorifying the word of the Lord. In Nehemiah, we see that the people rejoiced because they understood the word. Not only did they have it, not only was it preached to them, but God gave them understanding of it, and they rejoiced. This is what the Holy Spirit does in the hearts of his wheat. So, attentive listeners. Next. They were glad. So something happens in our hearts and minds when we hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have sin in our souls that we know that brings guilt and suffering. We live in a world filled with sin and suffering. All of our relationships are filled up with all of this sin and brokenness. We know something is wrong. And we have a Savior who brings deliverance to every spot. And the greatest need is to be delivered from God's wrath. And when the Lord God brings conviction into someone's soul and they discover that they look to Jesus and they can be forgiven, gladness, gladness, gladness. And this is what happens when we continue in the grace of God, gladness. This is the believing joy believing joy of salvation. I would go so far as to say you have not become a Christian if you've not experienced gladness at the contemplation of what God has done for you. And it's, it's not something like, well, I should be glad. It's a supernatural gift. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit because our hearts are not affected by these truths. We cannot cause our own hearts to be affected by these truths. God Himself comes in and ignites our souls and makes us sensible to the reality of our own situation and what Christ has done for us and His great love for us even when we are His enemies. <clears throat> they glorified the Word of the Lord. I want us to think about this. <clears throat> they glorify God. They're glad in their salvation. But in this 
these Gentiles, right? They're not the ones who sat in the synagogue week after week and heard the reading of the, the, uh, the law and the prophets. What are they thankful for? They are so thankful for the message of God. They glorified the word of the Lord. So the message of their salvation, they couldn't have found this anywhere else. They're so thankful for the word of the Lord that brings the salvation of the Lord to their souls. They're, they're coming to understand they don't need to go through the proselyte process to get to God. They don't need to go and become Jews to get to God. They are discovering by the word of the Lord that by trusting in Christ, they're forgiven. And that's it. They're forgiven when they believe in Christ. So, two things the commentary points out here. Because now the knowledge of it was diffused and not confined to the Jews only. So that's one of the key things they're so thankful for. So note, it is the glory of the word of the Lord that the further it spreads, the brighter it shines, which shows it to be not like the light of the candle, but like that of the sun when he goes forth in his strength. And secondly, because now the knowledge of it was brought to them. So it wasn't coming... uh, to the Jews only, it wasn't confined, confined to the Jews only, but now the light was coming to the whole world. So note this, those speak best of the honor of the word of the Lord that speak experimentally, and that means experientially, so God has touched your own soul, that have themselves been subdued by its power and comforted by its sweetness. So those who are of uh, the eternal elect, those who are his wheat, his pure seeds that are his, they have seen their sin. They've been brought to a deep sorrow for their own sin. They've been made sensible to the justice of God's wrath upon their own souls. And they've been brought face to face with Christ and his work upon the cross for them. They've been given faith and they know that their sins are forgiven and they rejoice. They rejoice. They know that he's come back from the dead and they will too. And they rejoice. They know that they need not fear death. And they rejoice. So this is the gladness that belongs to those that are his. And you did not, nor did anyone ever before you or any to come after us generate this faith from yourself. You did not produce this faith. The scriptures are so clear. Luke by the Spirit's inspiration, goes out of his way to keep us out of the thorny fields of Arminianism. He goes out of his way. Of course, he didn't know Arminianism would be named that. As many as had been appointed to eternal life. So who was saved? As many as had been appointed to... Did they appoint themselves? No. Who did the appointing? God. Commentary says, those believed to whom God gave grace to believe, whom by a secret and mighty operation he brought into subjection to the gospel of Christ and made willing in the day of his power. Those came to Christ whom the Father drew and to whom the Spirit made the gospel call effectual. It is called the faith of the operation of God in Colossians 2 and is said to be wrought by the same power that raised up Christ from the dead. This deepens our gladness, brothers and sisters. And this deepens our security. Because if I chose of myself, I could unchoose of myself. But if the one who spoke all things into existence and never tells a lie says that I'm his, 
He will never unsay it. And we can rejoice and be glad that this is not a temporary salvation. This is a permanent salvation. It is as sure as Christ's resurrected body seated at the right hand of the Father. So they rejoice and we rejoice with them that we have been appointed to eternal life and it is His appointment that we rest upon. So what happens next? Well, I mean, I don't know about you, but I want to go tell people what has happened to me. I want to go tell people about who Christ is. I want to speak of His goodness and His glory. And that's what happened. The word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. So note the fruit of belief. The joy of the Lord in the hearts of believers will overflow to widespread evangelism. Psalm 68.11 here in the commentary says, The Lord gave the word, and then great was the company of those that published it. So those that have become acquainted with Christ themselves will do what they can to bring others acquainted with him. You know, I remember back to the early days in, um, that, you know, we weren't Christians, but, man, I couldn't wait for my parents to meet uh, Catherine. I just wanted them to get to know her. And, um, and you know, I'm, and there came a time where she felt the same way about me meeting her parents. And, you know, when, when you love somebody, you want to introduce them to others. And there's no one like Christ. And this is what the commentary is getting at is, brothers and sisters, you know, this isn't about a bunch of ideas. This is about the person of Jesus Christ himself who has brought us into favor with God and communion with himself and grants to us. I've got to tell you this story. We're walking past one of the folks at um, Presbytery says, what is covenant theology? What does covenant mean? And um, one, of the, one of the elders, Pastor Allison, he says, oh, it just, it just means relationship. Covenant means relationship. It means God loves us and he's brought us into relationship with him and the covenant shows us what that's like and how we live in friendship with God. So when you hear covenant, you think about joyful relationship with God. That's what you should think about. And because sometimes we can make it about ideas instead of about communion with God. And this really, you know, ties back into the repentance that I think we experienced over the last three to five years. Um, like the church at Ephesus, you know, maybe come to love their distinctives more than God himself. They lost their first love. Let it never be so for us. May God enliven our souls day in, day out with a fiery love for him, for him, for him. Next. The Jews persecute Paul and Barnabas and expel them. So, I don't know about you, but throughout the course of this, there's just this beauty and this wonder and this love and this goodness on the one side. And on the other side is just this ugliness and this meanness and this refusal and these attacks. The winnowing. The winnowing clarifies things. Who are you? When you sit under the Word of God, which way do you go? When the word of God comes to your life, which way do you go? See, that's what happens. When you sit under the preaching of the word of God, if you are a Christian, if you, are, if you have faith in Christ, you will be like this. All these things you see happening will happen in your life at God's timing in various ways. But if you're not a Christian, it's not like you're just going to sit there and just kind of be neutral. No, you are going to become like these nasty Jews under the preaching of God's word. 
It's not just true for you and me here. It's true for anyone. This is the winnowing fan of God, and it never fails to winnow. So, the Jews start up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city. They raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they expelled them from their region. Now, all the disciples see this, right? All the disciples there in that town, all the ones who've come to believe it, they see this happen. And that's worth noting because we're going to get to the spot where they're still filled with joy at the end in spite of this. So it's worth pausing and noting the fruit of unbelief. The Jews stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. So first of all, this idea of stir up is a very emotional appeal. This concept of stirring up is appealing to emotions. Using fear or anger, some sort of passionate, really not reasonable, not based in rational thought. So it's not a focus on logical argumentation like the Jews may have done to some extent earlier when they were contradicting them publicly, trying to show weaknesses in their argument, which didn't work, and then they went on to just blaspheme, which is a form of ad hominem against God. Thought of that for the first time, right? Ad hominem is, you know, you lose the argument, and so you attack the person. Well, when you do that with God, that's called blasphemy. That's what they did. And so note how they start with devout and prominent women. So religious, these are devout and prominent. These are proselytes, probably. Uh, Religious people who keep the rituals and look good on the outside, thereby gaining a good reputation, and probably their prominence was was threatened by the gospel. They know the Jews were smart. They chose women, uh, probably because they saw an influential relationship or set of relationships from these women through the city rulers. So they got to the chief men of the city this way, and again, their positions of respect and power were likely threatened by the gospel. So this is pointing out, we don't know, but we can speculate. It says they're prominent chief men. So the the strong suggestion there is they love their position more than truth. They don't care whether what Paul and Barnabas says is true. They don't care whether it's true. And even if they lose the argument, they're not going to give in. It becomes irrational. So no longer are the chaff making arguments at this time. They attack individuals when they cannot win the attack against ideas. Expect this. This is the nature of persecution. So the doctrine here is those who reject the gospel because of envy and pride of position are easily controlled by emotional appeals that fail the test of reason within God's word. And so, you know, corollary to this is is don't expect solid, well-reasoned arguments from Scripture to accomplish persuasion in the hearts of those who continue to hate God. If God does not work in them to grant them faith, to submit, they will hate and they will attack. Note also the way the Jews used the power of women to help gain their way with the rulers who could persecute Paul and Barnabas. So a note to you women of God, to women in general, put your powers to use for God and his glory in the good ways that he designed. Ladies, young ladies, put your powers, the powers that he's uniquely given you as a woman to use for God and his glory in the good ways that he designed. So what did they do? They expelled them from their region. Remember when we looked at Psalm 2, they cast their cords out of their sight? This is another fulfillment of that. They don't want these people anywhere near them. The enemies of the gospel may expel God's ministers, even killing them, because that's the next step, right? Well, okay, they, they, they keep coming back. We'll just kill them next time. But brothers and sisters, the word of God cannot be expelled from this earth. 
They can kill us, but they cannot get rid of his word. They cannot kill his word. Uh, it will be here to the end, and it will flourish. It will not grow dim. So they leave, shaking the dust off their feet. The text says, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them. So this wasn't just, you know, a hygiene act. This was a ritual at that moment, and it was done in public to some extent. So when they leave, they make it clear this town is under judgment. The gospel ministers of that time understood the coming wrath of God against his apostate people. So we need to put it in that context. They understood that those who rejected Jesus Christ would come under his soon judgment, as we've discussed already. They came in the years leading up to AD 70 and the, the Great War when the Romans poured out their anger on the Jews and God unleashed the Romans on the Jews. So you don't want to be there in that town. This is a message to all who witness it, that staying in that city with those people for too long very well could lead to being destroyed along with them in that coming day of judgment. So it has a very local application at that time, but it's not limited to that. And Matthew Henry takes us through four things worthy of consideration when it comes to preaching and sharing the gospel. And it goes back to what I said before in terms of warning someone who refuses to submit to the gospel kindly. But there's a point in there. If we're going to try to be, if we're going to try to be comprehensive and God grants us the extent of that conversation with someone, we need to go here. They declared that they would have no more to do with them, would take nothing that was theirs, for they sought not theirs but them. Dust they are, and let them keep their dust to themselves. It shall not cleave to them. So there comes a point in time where when someone rejects the gospel and behaves in this fashion and becomes hostile to the gospel, that there's a parting that takes place. Number two, they expressed their detestation of their infidelity and that Though they were Jews by worth, yet having rejected the gospel of Christ, they were in their eyes no better than heathen and profane. As Jews and Gentiles, if they believe, are equally acceptable to God and good men, so if they do not, they are equally abominable. So regardless of someone's station in life, regardless of where they are, if they reject the gospel, they stand in this abominable position before God. Next. Thus they set them at defiance and expressed their contempt of them and their malice, which they looked upon as impotent. It was as much as to say, do your worst, we do not fear you, we know whom we serve and whom we have trusted. So there's great threats against Paul and Barnabas right now, and they still carry out this public act at that time. Um, it takes a moment to at least stop and knock the dust off your feet. They were in trouble, and they took the time to demonstrate that we're not afraid of you. We could stay here. We could stay here and we could experience your wrath. We're not leaving because we're afraid of you. We're leaving because we have work to do. We're leaving because we believe God's called us to go elsewhere. We're not leaving here because of your threats. And that's, that's contained in that warning. Next. Thus they left a testimony behind them that they had had a fair offer made them of the grace of the gospel, which shall be proved against them in the day of judgment. This dust will prove that the preachers of the gospel had been among them, but were expelled by them. Thus Christ had ordered them to do, and for this reason. So we see in Matthew 10 and Luke 9 where Jesus tells them, shake the dust off your feet. So they're obeying Christ when they do this, when they leave. And this town is left there clearly under God's judgment when they leave. That's a terrible place to be. That is a terrible place to be. So note, 
Preach pure, preach hard, but, but do not preach too long to those who hate God and persecute you. Love the enemies of God through prayer, with your face set towards doing God's will, and those individuals in your rearview mirror. Okay? So there's a time for that. All right? You're not being harsh. You're not being ugly. You're not being unloving. If they behave in this fashion, this level of overt persecution and hatred for the message, blaspheming God and seeking to harm and expel the people of God from their midst, shake the dust off your feet and go on and preach elsewhere. Next. We take the gospel everywhere we go. So they came to Iconium, okay? And there was much gospel fruit and fruitfulness there that we'll see, and that's tied in with God's message to us. Hey, they persecute you, they send you somewhere else, you still take the gospel with you. Christ goes with you. So persecution in one place will lead to gospel ministry somewhere else if we're walking in the Spirit as His ministers. I mean, it wouldn't have been too surprising if we had a Jonah moment here, right? Or an Elijah moment here. Woe is me, you know, and he falls down on the side of the ground and he has to have a, a raven bring him some food or something. That's not what happens, right? God has filled them with His Spirit. They remain faithful and they move on. And, and we can do the same thing. We don't have to have those moments where we have these great crises of faith and have to be rescued. That doesn't have to happen. Even, or I'm a terrible preacher. Barnabas, you, you preach from now on. I, I'm, I must not be very good at this. No. They understand. They see clearly. They understand the winnowing fork is at work, and they move to the next town. All right, so the disciples, and these are the disciples there at Antioch in Pisidia. That's who's being referenced here. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So this is the fruit of believing the gospel that we see in community too, right? There's an S on there. The disciples together are experiencing joy and being filled with the Holy Spirit. So I want us to note how joy and the Spirit travel together in the hearts of those who believe. If you have real joy from heaven, then that means the Holy Spirit fills you. If you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, you will have joy. These things are not going to be ever person of Christ dwells within you by his spirit, you will have joy. Doesn't mean you're always going to be without grief. Doesn't mean you're always going to be without mourning, right? Or sadness, right? We, we know that, but joy can be greater. Joy can be greater. They were very cheerful. cheerful. One would have expected that when Paul and Barnabas were expelled out of their coats, coasts, and perhaps forbidden to return upon pain of death, the disciples would have been full of grief, full of fear, looking for no other than that. If the planters of Christianity go, the plantation would soon come to nothing. Or that it would be their turn next to be banished to the country, and to them it would be more grievous, for it was their own. But no, they were filled with joy in Christ. Had such a satisfactory assurance of Christ carrying on and perfecting his own work in them and among them, and that either he would screened them from trouble or bared them up under it, that all their fears were swallowed up in their believing joys. This is really encouraging for us. I mean, think about what they just went through so early in this moment in their church history. And they didn't fall apart. They didn't go through a church split. They didn't yell at each other. Why did you get me into this? They're just filled with joy. Look what God is doing in their midst. Next. They were courageous, wonderfully animated with a holy resolution to cleave to Christ whatever difficulties they met with. This seems especially to be meant by their being filled with the Holy Ghost. 
But that same expre expression is used of Peter's boldness and Stephen's and Paul's. So the more we relish the comforts and, and encouragements we meet with and the power of godliness and the fuller our hearts are of them, the better prepared we are to face the difficulties we meet in the profession of godliness. In our path of life, we will face these difficulties. We will face persecution. And these, this little fledgling church demonstrates such great maturity at such a young age. Right? And we want to be like them. So quickly, I want us to just, in our minds, I hope that the Lord will bless you with this, list the things that we see about the wheat under the, in, filled with the Spirit and, in contrast, think through what, what the demonstration of unbelief. And just let that form in your mind and then we'll pray. Because you, you have to ask yourself, which way are you going, right? That's, when we come to the Word of God, we want to look at our own souls. Which way are you going individually? Which way is your family going? Which way is your marriage going? Children, children, which way? You know, your relationships with one another. Our church, which way is our church going? Which way are we going? So this is what I see here about the wheat that he gathers into his barn of joy. They have great hunger for God's word. They have great hunger for God's word preached. They are following Christ and linking up with his people. They are encouraging and being encouraged in God's grace. Grace is essential to these people. God's grace. They want to stay in it. We see here in this situation that when God's doing this, multitudes are drawn to the preached word. I want to see that, don't we? We see within these believers boldness in speech against God's enemies. They don't shrink away. They speak clearly. They define to the enemies with civility and clarity their state as a result of rejecting God. We see here a rejoicing in the global aspect of the gospel. There's no sense that Jesus Christ is a partial king and a partial victor amongst these people. He's just not done with his work in this earth yet. So they're filled with hope. They're hopeful. They have gladness in the global aspect of the gospel. They glorify God's word. They are so thankful for scripture. And you see that in their lives. People who are his wheat that he's bringing into his barn where none can take them out of. These are those who believe by God's grace, and they know that. They know that their faith comes because God chose them before time began. So there are people at peace. They're tranquil because they're resting in God's sovereignty. They're able to rejoice in the midst of hard times, very hard times. They spread the word of God. There's persecution underway. They ran Paul and Barnabas out because of the message. Did they stop talking about it? No. These people love the Lord. They're thankful to Him. And they speak of His goodness everywhere they go. They are not afraid to talk about the judgment of God. These kind of people understand that they deserve God's judgment. And that God delivered them from it. And they long to see others delivered from His judgment as well. And that, they understand that's a part of the gospel message. It can't be left out. 
And they understand there comes a point in time that someone may demonstrate themselves to be such an enemy of God that you could knock the dust off your feet in the relationship with those individuals. See, people filled with the Spirit of God understand that that might need to happen sometimes. And they are filled with joy and they're filled with the Spirit. This is what God does. This is what God does. Is God, is God doing that in your life? Is God doing that in your relationships? Is God doing that in our church? Is that what's happening? I can tell you, I, I certainly see the Lord's work here in my life like this, in my family, in our church. But I'm crying out to Him that He would bless us with more. More humility, more brokenness, more confession, more repentance, more sanctification together. On the other side here, you know, the works of the flesh are obvious. The chaff are revealed. They delay. So those who are on their way to condemnation delay. Because rationalize, well, I'll look into it later. I've got this party to go to. I've got this book to read. I've got this YouTube video to watch. Oh, I'll get to it later. They're envious. Okay, so people who aren't in Christ have, are going to have envy problems. They're going to want what other people want. They're not going to be able to rejoice when other people have success. So do you deal with envy, right? Is envy a big problem in your life or are you getting less envious? Have you ever, you know, children, they really help us understand. I mean, sometimes there's one toy there and there's another toy there and then there's too many toys for you and not enough for me. Envy, jealousy, selfishness. Which way are you going? Those who are the chaff, they're, they're consumed by envy. They're consumed by envy. And this envy will drive them into irrational forms of interaction and ungodly forms of interaction, ungodly speech towards one another, ad hominem attacks, attacking other people's character, undermining them as fellow human beings, dehumanizing speech towards other people, condescension, and ultimately being, having this kind of blaspheming attitude towards God. Opposing the gospel. Being against the gospel. We see this sometimes, don't we? Where these terrible, horrible stories that we hear about where a young man or a young woman goes off from her church and from her family or her family or his or her family that was loving and gospel-centered and just throws the whole thing under the bus, the family and the church, and blasphemes God. I'm not talking about situations that deserve to be corrected. I'm not talking about that. We've got these examples where people like you became children like you, like me, became like this. So where are you? What's the trajectory of your soul? Rejecting the Word of God, judging yourself unworthy to an eternal life. Sometimes that can be a conscious thought that people would have. Well, God can save others, but he can never save me. I don't think that's exactly what was going on in this text. But that can happen in someone's soul. Persecuting those who are of the people of God and expelling God's word from your life. Looking down upon those who bring you the word 
rejecting them, treating them poorly, marginalizing people who try to bring you God's word, and expelling God's word from your life, whether it be not reading it. So you see, I hope that you'll see just the clear distinction here. And do you know what happens in sanctification? We become more like that first group. We're becoming more like that first group and a lot less like that second group. And God is faithful. And he will do that in us and through us to the end. And so may God bless us uh, to be sanctified together. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice, Lord Jesus Christ, that you have your winnowing fork in your hand. And we rejoice that you have granted to us faith. We, your elect, the wheat safe in your barn, safe from the unquenchable fire, brought into your place of light and peace and joy, and granted the experience of your favor and the knowledge of our forgiveness and the faith to trust in you and the overflowing hope and joy and gladness that is ours. And you open our mouths to proclaim your glory and to speak of your goodness and greatness upon the cross and your resurrection from the dead to those around us and to call them into eternal life. Oh, bless us, Lord God, to be sanctified, to become more and more like Christ each day. In whose name we pray.